Well, good evening, D2 class. I'm sorry we're not able to be together again in person, but hey, I'm glad we can do this electronically uh, once again. So I hope you all have had a safe and warm um, last few days in the midst of some of this uh, exciting weather we've had. Um, next week, we will not have our class in person again, and I'm going to record for you again. Amy and I have scheduled to be out of town already next week, and so we will continue to have class and stay on pace, but You'll just need to keep up with us electronically uh, for the next uh, two Wednesday nights. So, so far what we've been studying, though, in our class has been trying to gain principles of Bible study. How do you go to your Bible and do more than just read it for a devotional application, though that's very helpful, but how do you study it? How do you find out what the Bible actually says? What does God mean by what he says? And one of the things we can take refuge in is the fact that God says what he means and means what he says. There's God doesn't pull punches. God's not trying to hide stuff. He's not playing tricks. Um, but we do learn there are some principles we have to employ if we want to accurately uh, understand our Bible and see what it is actually saying. So the big picture of understanding your Bible is always under the frame of context of, well, what is being said? To whom is it being said? And what time frame is it being said? And, and obviously the other pieces that we've learned too are the things that, um, for example, when was this said for the first time? And did God start a process there of intended meaning for that word or phrase from, from that point on? Does God give us a very definitive text that maybe teaches the full scope of a definition of a particular subject like we looked at last time? Well, tonight what we're going to do is get on page number 34 in your book, and we're going to pick up on principle number nine and understanding the principle of spiritual discernment by comparing Scripture with Scripture. The blank is discernment. Letter A, this key to understanding this principle is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So I invite you to go to your Bible now to 1 Corinthians 2. I'll actually begin reading in verse 1, and we're going to work through this text to gain the insight into this spiritual discernment and why this really matters. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says this, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, let's go back. A number one. Paul explains the great contrast in this section I just read between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. That God's wisdom is, it is obviously from above, and man's wisdom is nothing but pure earthly and, and here, but God's wisdom is something that can only be spiritually discerned. That's what we're, we're gaining here. Number two, God has revealed his truth, truth even, in the, even the deep things of God, to those who possess his spirit. Now look at verse 9 through 12. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, 
the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Here's the key. The truth of God's word is revealed to us through the spirit of God. Jesus said this even whenever he was speaking to the disciples that though he was going to ascend, that they should not be uptight about that because he was going to send the comforter, um, the Holy Spirit of God, who would teach them the things that he has said and again, that we would all be able to learn and understand the word. It is the Spirit of God who enlightens us, illuminates our understanding. Without the Spirit of God, you can't understand the word of God. It's just nothing but words and history and uh, stories, but you can't gain the spiritual insight of what is God doing because what happens, God teaches you through the power of his Spirit, but he also then gives you the discernment to be able to understand how does this practically play out in my life and then compels me by conviction to obey it. That is something that the, the natural man without Christ does not have that. He can read the words of the page and even understand the story to some degree that there's some kind of teaching or meaning there, but to gain the insight of what God's intention is and then to transfer or transform life according to it, well, no, that's not going to happen in a natural man. And so watch what happens then. But number four, God's word cannot be understood then by natural human reason alone. Human reason, verse 14, says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, but he cannot know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, number five, the rationale behind many modern versions of the Bible is to make the Bible clear and easier to read for modern man. And that's helpful. We appreciate that. And by no means, I I never want anyone to think that I'm picking on translations of the Bible or modern versions, but I do like to make sure we understand and keep things in their proper perspective, because it is often asked, why do, why do the Bibles all say different stuff? That seems really weird. If there's one God, one Spirit of God, then why so many Bibles that say so many different things? Well, because these are translated works where men either took a word-for-word -word translation from the, the language of Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic, and translated that into an English or German or Spanish or any other Bible, and they've translated from the word-for-word -word process. But there are others who we have talked before work from a paraphrase or what we would call transliteration, which is taking a thought-for-thought -thought or idea-for-idea, and it's kind of like taking the in other words and putting that on the page. Well, when you're just doing a devotional reading, that's really helpful. But when you're trying to study the deeper things of the Lord and trying to see the the consistencies of the Word and how God uh, mentions things for the first time, carries those ideas through the Bible consistently. There's words and phrases that unlock a lot of truth in the Word. We'll see some of those today. But without that, you're uh, in your transliterations, you will struggle to be able to ever see the fluid consistency of God's Word. And so the truth of the Bible is to be then spiritually discerned, and we recognize that Paul, uh, or that anyone can understand history and language and grammar and syntax. That's, that's true. As a matter of fact, I had an English teacher, and I think I've told you this once, but 
Amy and I had a teacher in college that that guy had read the Bible repeatedly. He didn't believe it. He didn't even believe God was real, but he loved the the grammar of the Bible and admired, quite frankly, the the literary work of Scripture. He just didn't believe any of it and could not discern any of it. He could not see himself as a sinner needing a Savior. It was like totally black to him. He could not see that. And yet the things that would be nurturing to my soul and comforting to my soul and assuring of my salvation were things that meant nothing to him. And so it was something I could see it right in front of my eyes watching this take place. So letter B, understanding the Bible is not a matter of anyone's interpretation. It's not your interpretation. It's not mine. It's not anyone else's because the Bible does something cool. God's designed the Bible to take care of itself. It interprets itself. That's why we compare Scripture with Scripture. We've seen this verse repeated now in our study from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, that says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. There is nowhere in the Bible you go and privately interpret this thing. No, the Bible is always to be interpreting itself. God defines the words. He defines the terms. He explains things so that we can understand. Now, as our Western mind works, we just like everything left to right and all linear and in order. And why didn't God just do it that way? Well, because he used 40 different authors. Uh, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, we've learned. He used 40 different people to write it for over the sp uh, span of about 1,500 years on three different continents. And, and amazingly enough, the Bible still reads as if it was written by one man. But God did this where we can compare Scripture with Scripture, time, different dispensations, and all of a sudden now come to the full counsel of the Word of God and its intended meaning for us as a reader. And so this does destroy then the argument that you can just hide behind, well, that's your interpretation. And often we've heard that if you've ever tried to explain spiritual truth to someone and the immediate response when they don't like what they hear is, well, that's your interpretation especially when you're dealing with someone who's lost and they don't like the idea that they're a sinner in need of a savior. So they, the pushback will be, you've privately interpreted your Bible to proclaim something I don't like. And so I'm going to push back on that. Well, the, how do you respond to that? You say, well, no, the Bible interprets itself. And so if you, if you take care of the tools of the Bible, meaning you read a text and then you show in other places in, in the Bible where it says the same thing and you can reinforce this, then it's not of any private. No, God takes care of it very repeatedly, no problem. So at issue is not your interpretation of mine. It's God's, he is the author of the Bible, the Spirit of God. Number four, this perfectly matches the truth then that we saw back in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Let's see it again. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, let her see. This principle has important implications, big implications. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, not personal opinions. To better understand your Bible, you must learn to cross-reference and use a concordance and take notes. Now, I'm going to show you uh, next time we're physically together again, I'm going to show you how to use some of these tools if you're not familiar with them, and possibly even how to categorize things in your Bible in the margins of your Bible. For the last many years, I've had a wide margin Bible that I use when I study. 
Now, I don't always teach from that Bible because the print's pretty tiny, but the margin around it is huge. And I make notes in there. I put references in there to other scriptures so that if I can memorize the home base of a particular subject, I put out in the margin other places that speak of that same word, that same phrase or idea. And so then I can chain, often we call them chain reference. And so I can create a link of chains throughout my uh, Bible to find the information about a particular subject so that I don't just build my case or my thought process on one verse when I may only not, I may only know a part of the counsel of the Word of God when I really need to understand the whole counsel of the Word of God on a particular matter. These uh, implications are significant when it comes to spiritually discerning context, contextualizing your Bible. Now, I want you to, I'm going to use an example of something I had happen just recently. I want you to go to Galatians chapter 3, and I'll pick up in verse 26, but I want to show you the verse that was used. Now, the situation I was in, I was visiting with somebody that um, would say they are gender neutral, and um, and maybe did not agree with the uh, teaching that I had regarding sexuality between uh, man and woman, and husbands and wives and all that. I think you get the idea. Well, so we get to verse 26, and I'm going to show you the verse that was used to draw a conclusion. It says that, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And that's where we stop. Well, what this individual was saying to me was, I am a Christian, and based on Galatians 3.28, as a Christian, there is no longer any such thing as male nor female. And so why am I making a big issue out of something that the Bible says no longer is a thing since Christ? Well, the question then is, is that what that is actually teaching? Well, no. That is not what that text is teaching. When I go back, what is Paul talking about in context in light of the entire book of Galatians in the subject of Christianity? Well, when we roll back into our into, into the book of Galatians, we can find out that um, the Galatians, the Galatian people, the Christians there, the Jewish Christians are trying to make the Gentiles become like Jews. They're holding on to their Judaism and wanting them to be circumcised. They want the Gentiles to be circumcised, hold on to the feast days. And basically, it's neat that you believe Christ, but now you need to be like a Jew. And so Paul is now correcting this, but it was hard for the Jew to ever understand, well, how can a Jew and a Gentile ever be in the same place at the same time worshiping God together unless the Gentile becomes like the Jew? That's not a thing. You have to become a proselyte Jew. And that was the whole problem that Paul was addressing. So as we get to back in chapter 3, I'm going to back up just a little bit. And I want you to look at verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, he preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Paul's describing here that through Abraham, good grief, clear back to Genesis 12, God had a plan for the Gentiles. And that in all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, which ultimately would lead to the nation of Israel. And Israel's whole role in this world is God was going to bring the Savior through them, which we know the Lord Jesus Christ came that way. 
But the whole plan was is that Israel would be the vehicle to the whole world knowing Christ. Well, at the end of the day, what was God's plan? That the Jew and the Gentile would be in the same church doing the same thing. We are worshiping together as one. So let's cross-reference here to get an idea of what does this mean somewhere else in the Bible. So turn a few pages to the right to Ephesians, and let's see the same thing play out. The church at Ephesus had the issue here of Jew and Gentile in the same body, and so they were struggling with this. Verse 11, chapter 2, Ephesians, verse 11, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision. Well, who called them that? The people of circumcision called them that. So by what is called the circumcision made with the flesh by hands. So the Jews being the circumcision were calling the Gentiles uncircumcision. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be called by that name. That sounds awkward. But verse 12, that at that time you're without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off are now brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one. Who's the us? Who are we talking about? Who's made us both one, the Jew and the Gentile, the circumcision, the uncircumcision, now one, and he broke down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Now, and he came, verse 17, these are such good verses, I hate to miss one. He came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit to the Father. So now, he's speaking here, Paul is again, of the reconciliation between the Jew and the Gentile being one in Christ Jesus in the church. Well, now when I go back to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, and it says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, why? Well, we're both one. We're not identified by those things. We're neither slave nor free. We're not, there's no dividing between those who were slave and free beforehand. Those could never be together in the same place. Or male or female could never be in the same place. That's not a thing. But now in Christ, that became a reality. Matter of fact, it's one of the earmarks of Christianity that was so transformational that you couldn't deny the resurrection is when Jews and Gentiles were worshiping in the same place, men and women in the same place. And matter of fact, women, as we would see with Priscilla and Aquila, a husband-wife team, she was instructing in the Word of God. Lydia, the seller of purple, was now instructing people in the Word of God. The number of women listed in Romans chapter 16 that were hosting the church in their home, this was completely off the radar for the Jew. But now, the Jew and the Gentile are one. And that is what Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 is teaching, is in Christ, the separation is no longer there. It's we're all one. This is not speaking to the fact that there's no longer any such thing as race, Jew or Greek, or any such thing as a boss or uh, an employee or male or female. That is not what that is teaching. But if you watch taking verses out of context to establish a private interpretation of what you want it to mean, 
Well, you could grab hold of that and build your case that, well, now as a Christian, it doesn't matter whether I'm male or female, and if I change my mind tomorrow, then that's okay too. But that is not what that verse is teaching about. So you can see the implications of, the, of comparing spiritual things with spiritual things is very important. Now let's go on to page number 35 and learn another principle. It's the principle of teaching by similitude. You remember the word simile in school, the words like or as. Well, that's what we're going to see here. The most common form of teaching is by association, contrast, and comparison. Matter of fact, in the book of Hosea, I'll give you a minute to find this one because it's a pretty small book. But in the book of Hosea, chapter 12, in case you're not there, just listen fast. Hosea 12.10 says, I have also spoken by the prophets, this is God speaking, and have multiplied visions. I have given symbols through the witness of the prophets. So we learned last time, is the Bible symbolic? Yes, at times. And God tells you when he's using symbols, and he's just declared here, he has given symbols. And in fact, Hosea the prophet himself is a symbol because the nation of Israel is living in a life of spiritual adultery and fornicating with the world and the false gods. And so he tells this man named Hosea to take a wife of harlotry and make her his wife. And she plays the harlot, and she goes away, but he, he loves her and pursues her, forgives her, even in her harlotry, just as the same way that God has taken the nation of Israel, who now has played the harlot, and God will restore them once again. And so Hosea's whole life as a prophet was even symbolic, but God uses things like this all the way through the Bible so that we can take and understand spiritual things that God is doing on a very grand scale but we can only see it in part. It's the same way you teach kids. Number one, this is simply teaching something that is not known by drawing comparisons and pointing out similitude to the things that are already known. Any good parent or teacher understands and constantly uses the basic principle of teaching. You take things that somebody can see and you it's always, oh, it's like this or it's as that. And we're, we always are making things simple with pictures. There's often no other way Verse number three, to answer a child's question, because a child obviously has limited scope. They haven't lived as many years as us. They don't understand all these things. So when they see something, they cannot interpret the understanding of it. And so what do we do? Well, it's like this, and we make it simple with something they do know. Well, that's what God does with us. And then the deep things of God, he even chooses to reveal to us, but he does it through simple word pictures. Number four, God's truth is spiritual, heavenly, and eternal, but man's understanding is carnal and earthly and finite. So God then, number six, communicates with his creation in terms we can understand, physical manifestations of invisible things. God communicates with man starting with what we do know and then drawing comparisons, similitude, and contrast with what we don't know. Now, now we're going to dig into the examples of this for a few minutes. Go to your Bible first, to the book of Matthew, chapter 13. I want to give you some examples that are not in your notes, and then we'll do the ones that are in your notes. But as it says in letter B, the two most important words in the Bible in this regard are like and as. And you're like, you got to be kidding me, the two biggest words in the Bible? Yeah, the most important when it comes to understanding this principle 
are like and as. And I will tell you, if you will slow down when you read your Bible, and every time you come to the word like or as, might maybe put a mark underneath it, and stop, what is being illustrated? God is illustrating a significant spiritual reality in a way that we can understand something tangible that makes sense. And especially so much of Jesus' teaching is with agricultural products because he was, uh, obviously of the time, people could understand what he was talking about. And so he likened the kingdom to so many things like that. So let me just show you a few of these. Matthew chapter 13 in verse 24, Jesus speaking parables. And another parable he put forth in verse 24 saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, he's like a man who sowed good seed in a field. Look at verse 31. Another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Aha. So I can go analyze a mustard seed. The people of that day would have understood that very well. And so it's like, okay, I, I get what you're saying. Now, in verse 33, does it again. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. That's in the bread. Well, this makes sense. Well, now, go on over to the book of Matthew, chapter 24. And we're going to dig into some things here that gets a little bit thick. Matthew 24. Because Jesus is going to teach constantly about end times in his kingdom, recognizing he as the king is here. Okay, so the king is present. He's speaking to the disciples. He has offered the kingdom to the Jews, and the Jewish leadership has rejected the kingdom. They rejected the king. Jesus obviously knows that he has come here on purpose to pay our sin debt. That has to happen first. But the king is still here. Had they received him as the king, uh, and the sin debt still has to get paid, had all that happened, Jesus could have established the kingdom on the spot. But they rejected him as the king, and so the salvation plan came full circle, and obviously he paid our sin debt, opening the door then unto the Gentiles, and now here we are living in a time of the church age, where any Jew that wants to become a Christ follower can. We know them to be Messianic Jews, as we might call them now. But any Gentile, of course, it becomes the focal point of this time, that the, the Word of God would go to the Gentiles. Well, Matthew chapter 24 teaches us Jesus in preparation for the return of the King and what's going to precede, what leads up to this. How would we know? And that's what the disciples have asked him is, how will we know when to anticipate your kingdom? So in verse 32, he says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. Now he's talking about end times. What's, what, what should we anticipate? When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, that's the stuff he's already talked about, know that it is near at the doors. Well, the it was re regarding the judgment of God. Remember, we might have talked about this. Well, I know we did from Matthew 24, the verses that precede this. We've talked about how the timeline that Jesus has put in order of the next big event on God's calendar right now would be the rapture of the church, the gathering away of the saints. He will, Jesus will descend into the clouds he will gather the church together in the clouds, receive them to himself, and take us into glory. 
after that, followed by a seven-year tribulation time frame. Jesus describes it. The seven-year time frame is broken in two parts, three and a half, three and a half. Remember the first three and a half years was a time when Israel would have a peace accord with the nations surrounding them. The Antichrist will be instrumental in that and, and making this peace. Therefore, he will be exalted to be a very great one that people would then follow him as a Christ-like figure. Halfway through at the three and a half year mark, remember Jesus talked about the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Well, what was that? That was when the Antichrist goes into the temple and declares himself to be God. And then the next three and a half years, the Antichrist has now broken the peace treaty with Israel, pursues them, and wants Israel dead. This would be like Hitler only on steroids. He, this would be really trying to exterminate the Jews from the planet. And so the next three and a half years is judgment from God poured down from heaven, and it's purifying the nation of Israel. And those who believe God, they're going to pay a great price and a great toll. Many will give their lives for their faith in Christ. But that next three and a half years is the great tribulation, and Jesus used that term. Well, that is followed then by the return of the king. And the Lord Jesus Christ, at the end of this seven years, there'll be a, the moon goes dark and everything goes out. And then here comes Jesus showing up on the scene. And that ushers in the millennial kingdom, where Jesus will rule and reign on this planet for a thousand years. Well, Jesus speaks of all this segment of times, and he does it often. But God uses illustrations in other places of the Bible to make it easier for us to understand if we're, if we're able to see. So watch what Jesus does here. Back to Matthew 24 and verse 30, uh, 34 now. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Verse 36, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now let's stop right there. Jesus just called someone to the witness stand, which now would drive us to go back in our Bible to the days of Noah. What is Jesus talking about? And he gave it as a signal. What it was like in the days of Noah is what we should anticipate coming forward here when the return of the king will take place and this judgment on the earth is going to happen. So when you go back then in your Bible to Genesis chapter 5, let's just go see what happened. He brings up this name Noah, but we got to get the family line in order to see, well, this is kind of cool watching what happens. So Based on the fact that we see in other places in Scripture that we have the age we're in now, the church age, the Gentiles receiving Christ, the rapture of the church we anticipate, the seven-year tribulation time, the return of the king. We get all those things in order in our head. Now watch what happens in Genesis chapter 5. So we begin in verse 21. A man named Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. 
So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God. We've seen that already. And he was not, for God took him. What? God just took him. Here's a man who's walking with God. Now we learn something in Scripture. How can you walk with God unless two be agreed? That's another good reference for you. But how can two walk together unless they be in agreement? Well, how do we come into agreement? You remember how we come into agreement with God? When we confess, the word confess means to agree with God about our sin. When we come into a confession with God about our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So here's a man named Enoch who walked with God, and all of a sudden God just took him away. Well, what follows then after this? Well, what follows later is a man named Noah shows up on the scene, and the man's name Noah Noah's name means rest. He's the one who's going to enter, uh, cause Israel to then enter into this rest. Now watch what, how this plays out. If you watch letter B, Enoch is raptured. During this judgment, though, Noah is preserved. I'm not going to read the whole Noah story because you know this, but if you think about what's happening here, Noah is the one who by faith believes God. He's one of the few, gets on the boat, builds the boat, gets in the thing, and then God floods out with judgment and wrath from heaven. Well, what does God do? God preserves them alive. In the same way that during the wrath of Almighty God, during the judgment, during the tribulation time frame, after this rapture's happened, the rapture of Enoch, you enter into a tribulation time on this earth. It's unlike any other time where this flood now takes place and God rescues a group of people that will then become the, well, they inherit the earth, their, their possession. And he becomes now the sole heir of the earth. And what does he do? Then he populates. Well, what we learn is those who live through the tribulation, there will be those who do live through the tribulation time frame. They populate the earth and the millennial kingdom. And so we see God giving an illustration of something in the um, Old Testament was the days of Noah real? Did the flood really happen? Yes, it's historically true and accurate. It did happen, but God was teaching something with it at the same time so that looking all the way forward to the eventual return of the King of the Lord Jesus Christ, God illustrated something there so we can see it. Now, that's to be spiritually discerned. Now, I'm going to use the simple words of like and as, though, so that we can unlock the way this thing works so it makes even more sense. Number two, these two words, like and ask, connect the tribulation to the events of the Exodus. Thinking about when did the nation of Israel come out of Egypt and then they come through the wilderness, okay? So we have a rescue or, um, that takes place, but then we have a, a tribulation that's going to happen as well. In Hosea chapter two, we were in Hosea just a moment ago, but let's look at it again. Hosea chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 1, says, Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. Bring charges against your mother, bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight, and her adulteries from between her breasts. 
Lest I strip her naked and expose her, as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. Now, God just used an as statement. Is he speaking here unto just an individual woman? No, Hosea's wife was a harlot. And Hosea was told to take this wife of harlotry to illustrate to Israel their harlotry. And God is now teaching, even through Hosea and his own family trauma, of God's dealings with the nation of Israel, and he's describing their birth. Look at verses 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her and her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor as a door of hope, and she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. Well, who is he talking about? Well, he's describing the nation of Israel coming up out of Egypt, and he's going to lead her out of Egypt, but through the wilderness. And this wilderness is going to be very much a picture then of tribulation time. In the book of Micah, chapter 7, Micah 7. These are probably not books you read all the time, but I get that. Chapter 7, verse 14 says, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gileads as in the days of old. As in the days when you came up out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. As in the days of Egypt, coming up out of Egypt, what is he putting them on notice for? He keeps repeating this theme over and over again in Ezekiel chapter 20. That's, if, if you'll catch this part of Bible study today, this principle, this will totally change the course of your study for the rest of your life. Because every time you see the word like and as, you will call time out where you're at and then have to go study and analyze what is exactly being said, or it will probably require you to go to another spot in Scripture to begin the, well, what really happened there exactly? Oh, and this is what's being illustrated here, so now I can understand. Yep, because God's not playing games with us. He's not holding back all these secrets, and no, there. if we will spend our time studying, God shows us even the deep things of God. Now, Deuteronomy does say, that the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But to those things that are revealed are revealed unto us and to our children forever. So there are things that God does reveal very distinctly. And there are secret things that belong to God, and he's never going to say. But, but he's given us his word loaded full so that we can see what does he say. Ezekiel chapter 20 in verse 36 says this, just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will plead my case with you, says the Lord. And this is describing Israel um, getting ready to be sent into judgment by the Babylonians for their sin, but God will restore them and bring them back one day. Now, well, let me give you just a, a couple more spots, and then we're going to move on. In the book of Hebrews, I'll go ahead and go there. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. Hebrews 4.8 <clears throat> says this, 
For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Now, what are you talking about? Remember, Joshua is the one who leads Israel into the promised land. But before that, they were in the wilderness. But he was speaking always when Joshua was leading to the promised land. He was speaking yet of another day. There's another one coming. Well, now let's put some of these pieces together. Let Number two, letter A. As in the day that she was born, connected to as Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Well, who are we talking about here? Exodus chapter 4 describes, we learned it was, well, we were talking about Hosea, wife Gomer, but not just her because God was using her to illustrate a reality, a truth. Exodus 4, 22 that says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel, my son, my firstborn. God's describing the nation being born out and born and then taken out of, his, out of Egypt and ultimately through the wilderness and onto the promised land. Letter B, the 40-year wilderness journey becomes a prophecy then of things to come. What happened in the 40 years? Well, the unbelieving Jews that that had the opportunity for the promised land, rejected God in unbelief, and died in the wilderness. Um, but those who did believe went on into the place of rest, and Joshua, Jehovah is salvation, led them into the rest where they were able to have victory and conquer and subdue the land as planned. But that wilderness journey turns into a picture of the tribulation time frame, a time of wrath and judgment of God, but in the midst of it, God is still preserving and protecting by his mercy. That dry land, the desert wilderness, that becomes a, a phrase and something we can see the word desert throughout Scripture. It's illustrative of not just land without water, but it can also describe someone's soul. It can describe the time of the judgment of God. So number three, these two words, like and ask, connect how Christ dealt with his accusers at his trial. In Isaiah 53, so here's another whole illustration of describing Jesus now being crucified. From Isaiah 53, the, Isaiah the prophet says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before a shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So it is describing how Jesus went to the cross and we know this, that through the Gospels, you don't see Jesus yelling and fighting back and arguing. And First Peter affirms the same thing, that he's not doing that. He never did that. No, he, as a lamb, silently being led to the slaughter, that's how he went. He, was, he willingly sacrificed his life, letter B, letter C. You can study sheep and learn a great deal about how the Savior went to the cross. He is our example in suffering, First Peter chapter 2. 19 through 25. You can go look at that. Number four, these two words give us a better understanding of marriage and our relationship with Christ. We know this. Here's another example. Uh, marriage. Ephesians chapter four, or five, excuse me. Ephesians chapter five, verse 24. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So we see this repeated. 
This same passage, then, also opens up much of the Old Testament as a prophetic portrait of Christ and his bride. So here's what happened. We often say, and I've thought the same thing many times, that why, you know, the marriage relationship is the most important relationship you can have outside of your relationship with Christ. And yet it feels like the Bible doesn't say too much about it. It's like, okay, husbands, love your wives and do it like Christ loved the church. All right, get that. And wives, love your husbands and respect your husbands. All right, we get that. Well, those words are repeated through several of Paul's letters. And it's like, is there not a lot more we could talk about here? Because I need more illustration, I need more understanding. I, need, I don't get it. That's not enough for me. Well, when you grab hold of the words like and as, and now unravel this through the whole Bible in the illustrative points that God's making, now watch what happens when we talk about the Christ, Christ and his bride. Well, now we see this in the book of Song of Solomon, the son of David who married a Gentile bride. You remember when Jesus was on the scene, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. That was what they called him. So now the son of David takes a Gentile bride, the Shunammite bride, for his wife. And then you, speak, you see how he speaks of her and how he relates to her in Song of Solomon. Ruth, the Gentile bride redeemed by the Jewish kinsman redeemer who met her in the field at harvest time. An incredible journey there of not only Ruth's um, character, as we've already seen in our Sunday morning study, but also of Boaz. And so we can learn some things about both, uh, how to relate as the husbandman, but also how to relate as the bride. Many today don't want to accept the church as it appears in the Old Testament because it's not there in a direct sense. And that's true. You don't see the word church and the concept of the Jew and the Gentile in the same church, no, that doesn't show up in the Old Testament directly, and that's true. However, don't ever lose sight of the fact that it's illustrated in terms of a mystery. Let's unpack that for a second. Number four, but in the same book of Ephesians, Paul spoke of God having revealed to him the mystery of the Jew and Gentile in Christ. This mystery is described then in Ephesians chapter 3. Now, Ephesians 3, 1 through 12. Here we go. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation, remember that means dispense, God's dispensing grace different ways, different times, heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which, by which this mystery, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has been now revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And here it is, that the Gentiles, here's the mystery revealed, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So how is this possible? By belief of the gospel, belief on the Lord Jesus Christ, now the, the Gentiles are of the same air, same body, same fellowship. That was a mystery, meaning it's a truth that's been there the whole time, but not revealed in clarity till now. Well, how was it there before? Well, it, you would have seen it before with Rahab the harlot being brought into the nation of Israel. And matter of fact, you'll see her name in the lineage of Jesus Christ bearing out sons of God. You'll see it with Ruth, as we just already talked about. You see it in Song of Solomon with 
um, the son of David taking a Gentile bride. So you're seeing this communicated again and again and again in the Old Testament of God's design for the Gentile being a part with the Jew, fellow heirs, but you're not seeing the word church distinct in the Old Testament. It was a mystery not revealed until now. Well, now verse 8 says, To me, who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. See, the, even the spiritual dark realm would not understand what God was doing here with the church. When this mystery was revealed, it's why the assault on the church came hot and heavy, and the devil went on a, about a 200-year plan for extermination to put the church out of business through persecution. It didn't work, and so the devil changed his program significantly. So in about 325 AD, there was a shift where the devil worked instead to make almost a marriage agreement between the government and the church so that the two become one, and paganism and the church kind of married up together. That's a whole other story for another day. But the point being, the devil, did, he didn't see this mystery coming either. He didn't know. So this all gets revealed. Principalities and powers in heavenly places see this in verse 10. According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Whoa. Well, this is a loaded subject. Watch what happens. Verse num or number six in your notes. In the common usage of this Greek word translated here as mystery in the New Testament times, it's not something mysterious that no one can know, but rather something once hidden, but now clearly is revealed. That's what we're dealing with. And that's what Paul said. It was, you couldn't see it before, but now, now it's being made known. So the mystery of the church was hidden in the Old Testament, but is now clearly revealed by the Holy Spirit, leading the believer into all truth, comparing Scripture with Scripture. So you can't come along and say, well, Dwayne, that's your private interpretation that the church um, only exists in the New Testament. No, I can look at the illustrations of it through the Old to understand the mystery. So when God now reveals a mystery through Paul's writing in, in Ephesians, I can see that he said this has been here the whole time. Well, where? I can go look at the where and begin to understand the gravity of the bride and the husbandman and what a great bunch of lessons. So now, do I only get to go to Ephesians chapter 5 to learn how to be a husband? No, I've got an entire Bible where I can work from to see God's gal or a chivalry for his, his bride and, and how to behave as the bride in, in response to, the, to my husbandman. And therefore, number eight, the believer is not looking for hidden meaning, but allowing God's Spirit to show that which God has revealed on the basis of Christ's finished work. And speaking of finished work, we're finished for tonight. So I look forward to uh, recording for you again for next week, and we will continue in our principles to gather up numbers 11 and 12, and who knows how much further we'll go from there. I do encourage you, please, if you have questions, because we go through a lot of stuff here kind of lickety-split, if we have questions, write them down, bring them back, and when we get to be together in person, there'll be a great time to catch back up on these things and 
and, um, and process your questions. Hope you have a great week. Stay warm. See you next time.